When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at AvalonWaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. I'm so incredibly thrilled that we all are graced with the presence of today's guest. She is a faith healer, a scholar, and an award-winning peacemaker. She is the brilliant professor, Najiba Saeed. Najiba is an associate professor of interreligious education at Claremont School of Theology and a director of the Center for Global Peacebuilding. A two-time recipient of the John Anson Ford Award for Reducing Violence in Schools and in Areas of Interracial Gang Conflicts, Najiba is widely recognized as a leader in peacebuilding and social justice-based research. Her work has included starting restorative justice meditation programs in many institutions, including the University of Southern California, and numerous middle and high schools. Najiba is a highly sought-after advisor that has served as an on-the-ground peace interventionist and facilitated conflict resolution processes for conflicts and controversies around the world, in addition to chairing numerous international conferences on Muslim and interfaith peacebuilding. As a scholar, her research articles have explored everything from restorative healing and justice to faith-based conflict resolution to analysis of state violence and structural racism And she has designed and taught numerous graduate courses in interreligious education. Najiba is also a regular blogger for Muslim Voices, Feminist.com, Huffington Post, and has been featured in the Los Angeles Times on NPR, PBS, and continues to be quoted by print and news media around the globe. In my conversation with Najiba, we discuss peacemaking versus peace producing, the importance of listening, the many forms of violence we experience in the world, 
how to discuss conflict with children, Najiba's connection to numerous cultures and faiths, immigrating to the United States, and her childhood, the life experiences, ideas, and principles that guide her academic and social justice work. Enjoy. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. What a what an odd time and strange circumstance. It, it makes me even more grateful to have the opportunity to have inspiring conversations, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I think um I think, you know, you you read about things in history and you think, oh, I'm never gonna live through that. And then you suddenly realize we are living in a moment that's going to be recorded for so many generations to come. They're going to look at us and see what choices we made as people. Well, let's let's go back a bit. I'm I'm actually trying to remember. I was talking to my producer about this this morning. Do you do you know how we first connected? I feel like we've been connected for so long that I don't remember. I think we have a lot of common friends. Um, Nia, Lauren. There are a lot of folks yeah. that are doing good work, and um, I you know I believe that good work, you know, we gather around it. I tell my students, my graduate students, I say, don't network, but look for people who are doing the good work that you want to do in the world. And you'll find that people are connected. So you make the world smaller when we do good for each other and for the larger community. So yeah, I feel like we met in some, I don't think we met face to face, but we met through so many other people who've recommended, um, you know, recommended the good work that you support. So so it's an honor for me as well. Well, thank you. I It's funny. I was saying to another friend a while back that I feel like in the last decade, uh, do you remember those little magnet games? The, the, the And they're, they're clusters of like little kind of pewter colored magnetic balls. Oh, and when you right. spread them out, if you get them far enough apart, the, the magnetic pull stops and then you start to kind of bat them in from the edges and then suddenly they all cluster back together really fast. I I feel like that has happened in my world with, to your point, so many people who are doing good work and working on incredible social change. And it's almost like we've all been able to magnet together. And I think it's particularly the folks that we have in common have always been animated by an ethic of love because there's a way to do social change and social justice work that's really transactional. And what I always tell uh, folks that I work with, if you're not animated with love and looking for your own self-transformation and learning, then you're just out there doing things for people. And what we really want to do is work with people, not for people. So, you know, I think that's really important. One of um, really beautiful, beautiful saying by an African theologian, Mercy Odeyoye, she says that it's not that people don't have voice, it's that we all need to learn to listen better. So no one is voiceless. We have to work collectively to listen better. So I think that's that really taught me a lot about how I do my work. I love that. Wow. That really, that cuts deep. That's really beautiful. Well, before we move into how, how to listen and, and who you listen to and the ways that you do, I always like to go back. Uh, with my guests, I like to kind of start at the beginning. You were born in Kashmir. I was. That's <laughs> I was. I was born in Kashmir. Mm-hmm. And how long did you live there before coming to the States? 
So I was born there and I came to the United States when I was three years old. Um, Kashmir, um, if you're aware of it, has one of the highest military to civilian ratios in the world. So I grew up with this kind of history and story of, of really of violence and being born into a place that had been subjected to multiple generations of it. And so when I came to the U.S., I said, you know, um, I didn't say it at three years old. <laughs> I was just learning how to speak. I think, um, you know, at that age, I, I, I began to understand that I wanted to dedicate my life to peacemaking and always uh, animating justice through a lens of wholeness and healing and wellness for everyone. Was that part of why your parents wanted to immigrate to the U.S., to have a different kind of societal experience, more separate from a military? Um, I think what... I think the 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 reality of such a large military presence in Kashmir led a lot of people to think about what opportunities their children had. And for my parents, like many immigrant families, education was so important. So they came here to study as students and um, contributed to society and felt that this was a place that they wanted to contribute to. And I think one of the things they really uh, taught us was that, for instance, um, I became involved with gun control and violence prevention in the United States because I always thought, uh, you know, I'm also Muslim and I always felt that being a peacemaker is because of my religion, not despite it. So if I Mm. uh, am going to work to end war all over the world, then I have to be able to, to do as I've done over the years, work on, for instance, interracial gang conflicts here in Los Angeles and and be a peacemaker, not just for religion, uh, religious communities around the world and intervening in conflicts, but to do it in my own backyard. So I didn't want to be, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that my whole life had an integrity around peacemaking so that wherever I am, I don't just make peace, but I'm part of producing it. How do you distinguish the two, making peace and producing peace? I think um, that's a really good question. Um, So in terms of making peace, I see it as you come into a conflict. It's already happened. And we're asking sort of after the fact, what do we do? After the situation, what do we do? Um, And peace producing says, you know what? We want to emanate peace from the internal level. So that when I walk into a room, my presence itself encourages both my own soul and those around me to act in a way that's far more respectful. And then taking Mm. the next level to the structural level. So in my work, I talk a lot about structural violence and racism. So it's not just about me, you know, you and I, Sophia, getting along. It's about does the whole society, is it built on a culture of peace? Or are we built on a culture of violence? And I often tell people any religion or any community or any place is capable of violence or peace. What we need to think about in peace production is whether as a culture we're encouraging and rewarding violence or encouraging and rewarding peace. When you talk about encouragement and reward for violence or peace, what 
for people who are listening, what are, what are ways that you identify those things? What could we be looking at and learning to see encouragement or reward around us? You know, um, for instance, uh, leaders like Nelson Mandela tell us the way a society treats its children is an indicator of how much that society values the next generations. So mm. do we have schools that are funded well? Do we have uh, programs that engage and involve uh, our youth after school? Do we have a society that is investing far more in technology of war over peace? Um, you know, I think those are some substantial things that you can see just from the way we make budgets in our communities, uh, even at the very local level. You know, are we, you know, I think a lot about the notion of how moving away from retributive justice or away from investing just in policing and more into the community with social workers who can go out when a conflict happens instead of calling um, and relying on on um, interventions that are far more, you know, can be damaging if they're not taking in the mental health component of a, of a conflict. So, so those are some of the indicators. And I wonder what the world would look mm-hmm. like if we began to think about what if we invested in peace as much or even a fraction of what we invest in violence. And I think we would have a really different way of looking at almost everything in our lives. I really like that. Do you, do you, from this perspective and the way that you analyze things now and then thinking about, as you were saying, you know, coming here at three, do you recall when you became aware of systems like this, when, when this stuff started to sort of illuminate for you? Was, was that coming from your family or these conversations you were having in the home? You know, I think, um, I think that's, I think that the the light turned on partly when I was traveling and, um, you know, all over the world and seeing um, seeing the outcome of generational war and conflict. And then hearing and learning about the fact that kids in parts of L.A. have as much PTSD or uh, stress level because of the violence that they experience in their um, daily lives and, you know, I realized, like, we have this idea of, of, of celebrating Nobel Prize winners who do something, you know, as Americans, um, often it's like, well, they're doing peace abroad, somewhere else, far away, they're parachuting in and coming into a conflict. And, you know, I think um, kind of turning that lens in and saying, you know, my students, I train people who are going to be pastors who are going to be rabbis, who are going to be imams, religious leaders. And the stories of what they do on the front lines of preventing violence in communities, of dealing with food deserts, you know, there's all kinds and all forms of violence. When you don't have healthy food in your neighborhood, you know, that leads, we don't think about that, but that is. And I think what has become so clear to me in, um, now we're looking at at the the communities and the demographics of who are dying from the coronavirus. And we realize that communities of color are disproportionately affected. So I think for me, it's always been, it's always been a piece of thinking about how as a religious and spiritual person, you know, is my neighbor going to bed hungry? 
that's a question we ask in my tradition. Is your neighbor hungry? Can you go to sleep? That's something that, you know, the Christian tradition says you're supposed to love yourself as your neighbor. And the Jewish tradition is so deeply involved with healing the world to Kulanolam. So, you know, that's a question that it shouldn't be a controversial question. You know, are people hungry? Are do people have access to health care? I mean, these are all questions. Not having health care is a form of violence right now. Can't go and get the treatment you need. <laughs> Sorry, at the hospital. Then, you know, this is these are realities that we have to begin to think about. Violence isn't just getting. Um, Violence isn't just inflicted by a weapon. Violence can be inflicted by these invisible, these invisible weapons that um, invisible weapons that don't give people access to um, to healthcare, yeah, or all forms of care these days. You know, um, we live in the city of Los Angeles, has tens of thousands of people in the streets. Um, there's a beautiful church that does a service every year for the people that die in the streets in Los Angeles that have no one to, um, to, to, to name or to, to hold that ceremony for them. So, you know, I think, I think while there can, while we can get overwhelmed with it, it's important not to get paralyzed in our analysis and say, there's so many difficult things. The hope is, the hope is always that, um, it's not only just one person changing things, but the hardest thing to change is the way things are. And if you ask people, why do you do things? And they say, well, we just do it because it's always been done this way. Mm. We need to interrogate that. You know, we need to interrogate that and say, well, do prisons make sense? Does, you know, does it make sense that what we're doing, does it make sense to not have healthcare accessible? So, you know, just because something's been done a certain way doesn't mean that it's right. In fact, it might have been built in a way that it would exclude others. Right. Well, yeah, to to ask some of those questions, you know, does it make sense that we as a nation spend more on our military than the next 26 countries combined on, on the greatest expenditures list? Um, but we don't create access to health care, which again, we know if we had universal health care, we'd be saving money because we wouldn't be treating so many sick people when they're so sick. We would keep people well. It's, it's all really interesting to examine, especially at a time like this, especially in the midst of the, of this pandemic. You mentioned, uh, teaching and you talk about, uh, whether the clergy, the, the, the rabbinical tradition, imams and, in the Muslim tradition, the the connection that you have to so many cultures, to so many faiths, did that come from the work or, or did that play a role in your life growing up? You know, it definitely was how I was raised. I remember, mm-hmm. um, you know, I thought, oh, when I was growing up, of course, I went to mosque and I attend a mosque here in Los Angeles. Every Saturday, we feed people of all different faith traditions and I thought, oh, doesn't everyone go to, you know, doesn't everyone go to church? Or haven't you been to a synagogue or a Sikhwara mm. or a Hindu temple? And I realized, no, not everyone has done that. And what's incredible is that um, all the research shows that we are imprinted with racism, with sexism, with homophobia, whatever uh, a form of hatred is by the age of five. So... Mm you actually, what we talk about in my work is pro-social programs, helping people work across difference. 
you know, we have to work with kids as young as zero to five. So I remember going into elementary schools and teaching children on playgrounds how to mediate conflicts. And you know what's so funny is um, if you go to a kindergarten playground, the way that the, go- the children negotiate getting on a swing, those are the same dynamics that two countries can do to negotiate through violence or even trade agreements. It's about taking turns. It's about communicating. It's about learning each other's interests. And so for me, I think my childhood really built this capacity to be passionate about understanding that in the end, winning is not about dominating the other, but it's about humanizing one another um, in a way that inspires us to change, not just for ourselves, but with each other. What does it look like? And this this takes us a bit off track of my questions, but we'll come back. What does it look like to teach conflict mediation and resolution to elementary school kids? Where do you start? That's my favorite. Before I became a professor, I actually did. I ran organizations that did that for 10 years. Hmm. And you know what's powerful is children have like an innate sense of justice. They understand fairness. They understand parity. And they have um, an incredible capacity for compassion So, you know, I I often tell uh, parents that I'm working with, uh, I I also go to my mosque and we have a parenting group. We talked about sibling conflicts a couple weeks ago. And we talked about instead of using a punishing approach um, with children, how do you have a conversation that gets to vulnerability? Because right now our society says the way to be strong is to dominate the other physically, is to have more power, have more money, to have more whatever that value is. And what I what I found with children, I, I often say, you know, hate is a learned behavior, but so is love. So just like we have to invest in peace at the social level, <laughs> we have to teach, we have to teach and operationalize love. Like when I work with young kids, I say, what does peace sound like to you? What does peace feel like? What does peace smell like in your community? And have them draw their own neighborhood and talk about what peace, what does peace mean to them? Um, And you would be so amazed because so many of them bring in nature. You know, a child six or seven will start to talk about, well, you know, I wish we had more trees. I wish that I could see water because that makes me feel peaceful. And so what we find is that children um, need opportunities to be able to talk about conflict and they need an opportunity to understand how to navigate the hard feelings that come with it. Because when we're in conflict, we're scared, we're threatened. And if we don't know how to deal with that fear, as we grow older, that fear turns into hate and that hate turns into, you know, prejudice. So we really have to imprint young uh, kids with the capacity to not just talk about difference, but also experience people in communities that are very different from who they are. That's really interesting. How, how did your parents do that with you? You know, what was your life like as a little girl, what kinds of activities were you into and and how did this sort of diversity of experience come into play? 
so um, you know, my parents were really um, were really interested in having us meet people of different backgrounds and religious traditions. There was no part of the city that wasn't a part of our city. We didn't they and they never used terminology like this is this is this part of town is safe, this part of town is not safe this institution, this church, this mosque, whatever it is. And I didn't realize to what degree they really built a sense of community. So even the language we use to describe the world around our children, if we use language that presents elements as threatening or locations or communities, that gets imprinted on us. And they really have this incredible holistic language and I think central to what they did uh, was our education, exposing us to books from um, different histories, different traditions. So it wasn't like, okay, I'm Najiba and my history is the only one that I need to learn. It us a sense of connection to so many different um, communities and exposure through books, through movies, through discussions, through friendships. But none of it was forced because I think sometimes parents, I have an 11-year-old, she's like, I'm 11, mom, I'm not 12 yet. I have an 11 and a 13-year-old. And, you know, I think it's important not to say, hey, kids, now we're going to talk about diversity, right? And to make it, un, to kind of, they just, for my parents, it was seamlessly built into who we were and how we functioned as a family. And that's what I would really encourage us to think about is, how do we transform our lives to be built on principles that are really authentic to us? So for me, as a Muslim woman, a South Asian woman, um, when I come to this work, I come to it deeply, deeply embedded in um, my history, but also very literate of other histories and communities. And I think that's really important. So I'm really thankful for them. So. And they would take us to like religious celebrations of other communities. So I remember, you know, I remember going to a Seder at the age of seven and hearing Hebrew and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was so exotic and foreign. It became just a part of appreciating. And really the best way to describe it is they taught me to see the sacred wherever I went. It's so cool. I, I love that you had that experience because I, I did in my own way as well. My my mom grew up very Catholic. My dad um, grew up of a, in a different Christian tradition and is pretty agnostic. And my aunt and uncle are Jewish. And I grew up celebrating, you know, Christmas and Hanukkah and going to church and mass sometimes and going to synagogue a lot. And, and it made me so curious because as a little kid, I realized how many people would fight about religion. And to me, I was like, I mean— this is kind of the same. And that got me studying Eastern traditions and got me studying Hinduism. And then my my senior year in high school, actually, I took a full year of Islamic study. And, and I'm so grateful to have grown up in a family that always encouraged my exploration. And, and to your point, to see the through line of the sacred in any faith is something that I... I'm just so grateful to have been able to experience throughout my life. And it has affected the way that I travel 
And it affects the way I get to participate in my community, you know, whether it's going to service at temple for high holidays or going to Friday prayer at mosque with my friend May. You know, there's there's such a there's such a beauty in the reverence of it. And and I do wish that that was more readily available to all of us to experience each other's worlds and traditions. Um in the same way, I think that as a society, we've come to love experiencing other people's food. Exactly. We forget that other people's food is of their culture, is of right. their heritage. Right. And I and I, I wish that we were more encouraged to take it steps farther and and really learn about each other's practices. I think it's so illuminating and, and unifying. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I try to integrate into my children is that not only is it exposure, but it's also listening to stories and learning about other religious traditions, not just reading about them, but learning from what we call lived religion, which is Hmm. sacred, you know, not just looking at the Quran and um, the Hebrew Bible and the, you know, in the New Testament, but it's about how are people, everyday people practicing their faith and also includes people who don't have a religious prescription, people who are not connected to one religious community. And I think that connection is through justice and service. So for my kids, their youth group at their mosque did an interfaith dialogue with a Jewish youth group too. It was really sweet. But with my kids, it's also really about lived religion. How do they live out their tradition as Muslims? So that means whenever we can on Saturday, we um, go to our mosque and uh, prepare and actually go directly and serve, you know, a mostly Christian. My mosque is in Koreatown, so it's a mostly elderly Christian Asian um, Asian families that come. And it's so sweet because this elderly Christian man, he doesn't speak English, but he takes my daughter aside or, and, and says to her in Arabic, thank you. And you know, she'll ask me, mom, how, you know, we sit there and we're just marveling at how people are making this effort to learn our culture while they're in a position of, you know, being in our community. And then we um, go to the park across the mosque and give food to families that live without shelter. So I want, you know, I want them to understand that their religious tradition is not about just serving people who are like them, but it's about uh, walking in our community, we say, you know, the prayer of people who are oppressed, that God answers them. There's no veil between them and God. So I want them to understand that actually um, people um, that are often in other scenarios not valued um, as a spiritual person and a spiritual practice, that's actually the most holy place to be. It's not out of pity. It's actually that that is the most sacred place to be. And uh, service isn't about charity. It's about, um, it's about walking with people in their journey. And service is about uplifting yourself by being with those that are closest to God. It makes me think, and I promise this is going somewhere good. (laughs) It makes me think of that. There's a meme that's been going around a lot on social media that talks about how so many of the leaders in this country who claim to be religious are acting so a-religiously that, that, you know, for, for many of these conservative leaders who say that they're Christian, that they're 
they're missing it because Jesus would have been walking with the homeless and the refugees and those without health care and those suffering and, you know, those at the border. And, um, and I think there's something so magnificent about that reminder that to be of service, to be whatever your faith's version of godly is, is to stand with those who are suffering. And I, I just, I think it's a nice thing to, to reiterate in, in times like this where, where scarcity can, I think, make people respond out of fear to, to choose to do the opposite and respond out of love. And, and to show Absolutely. up and, and to give when you might be afraid you may not have enough is is a real powerful medicine. You know, and what struck me, I've been tracking um, altruism or service um, after the virus all over the world. And it's been beautiful in places like Pakistan, the Muslim tradition of of charity. Uh, people are, are helping those that are losing their jobs. One of the most beautiful responses was from churches in the South, I saw within a couple of days of social isolation, this is almost maybe now three weeks ago, I can't remember, every day feels like a month. True. You know, um, <laughs> conservative and liberal churches. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, I was really struck by these churches that sent out emails saying, you know, the elderly members of our community cannot make it to the grocery store. So those of us that are younger um, you know, teenagers, we are going to go shopping and email all of the elderly members of our community and drop food off. And I saw these, these signups that, you know, churches were doing locally. And I, you know, I think that that's really important because religion is very often, it's often assumed that those that have a conservative perspective are, um, are not generous. And I think that's actually not the case. And I just wanted to point out that whether you're progressive, whether you're uh, conservative, that there is always room for service and people of different faith traditions are really working um, in a way that is altruistic. And I got, I was so struck that it's actually people who have very little that are giving so much. And, um, you know, <laughs> sorry, we don't have to give just from our, um, we don't have to give just money. We can give service. Um, there have been a lot of, uh, I've been seeing a lot of mosques and a lot of different churches and synagogues who are sewing um, face masks for healthcare workers. So, you know, we don't, it's, it's, it seems like an adage where like, Oh, it's a cliche, like, Oh, do something to help people out. But if you begin to build it into your lifestyle and you do it with your friends, you even change how you socialize instead of getting together. And, um, you know, I get together with friends and do service. My children's birthdays, we go to these, as I mentioned, food pantries and work, but part of now their birthday is to say, Hey, let's go do some extra service. So it's built into how we do our lifestyle and I think it has to be built not just into, you know, I, I don't want to encourage people to do altruism tourism, you know, where it's, you go out and you, you want to have an experience. Well, what I'm trying to point out is here, you start right. looking at choices you make of what you buy, where you buy it. Um, you begin to look at the businesses that you support. You begin to consider, 
you know, what investments you make, you begin, I mean, it just, it changes your perspective of, am I serving a greater purpose than myself? Yeah. And um, that doesn't have to be a religious principle. People who are secular and atheists can also be humanists and think that way. So I just, you know, I just think that this is a wide open conversation. And, um, you know, I think sometimes marching, uh, Rabbi Heschel said that, you know, marching was a form of prayer when he walked with Dr. King. So walking. So sometimes this path doesn't have to be so, um, it doesn't have to be so public and so valiant. Um, we truly know how ethical we are as human beings when no one is in the room and we make the right choice to support um, a larger sense of community than ourselves. I love that. It's so interesting to think about your story and, and your kind of path and and to see the parallels between the way that you were raised and the way that it has influenced your life and the way that you're now raising your kids. What, what did your parents do when, when they came here? What, what was life? Where did you move to? Where did you, where did you settle? I, I realized I jumped ahead and I forgot to ask you these questions that are sitting here in front of my face on my prep talk. <laughs> so interestingly enough, I grew up mostly in the Midwest of the United States. So my dad, um, my dad studied uh, linguistics and languages at Indiana University. You know, one thing I really loved about small towns, and this is why I hope this conversation is much broader than just the coasts. Um, I often tell people interfaith work or work between different religious communities, if it happens in small towns, is the most profound in the heartland of the country because there's usually one synagogue, one church, well, many, often more churches, and maybe one mosque. And the kinds of relationships like I've seen in small towns in Iowa and Indiana, um, in the South, in Alabama, when people do come together, they actually know each other. You know, it's, it's not just performance. It's, uh, it's, it's, we know each other, we're with each other. When the synagogue gets targeted, people will show up when the mosque gets targeted and um, I think that in some ways, spending the first 10 or 11 years in small towns in a very small town in Indiana, you know, um, this is, I was thinking about this. My father, for Muslims at that time, similar to the Jewish community who eat uh, kosher meat, we eat something called halal meat. So my dad needed to get halal meat. And at this time in the eighties, there weren't really stores that you could get it in a small town. So he talked to my bus driver, Mrs. Anderson, who owned a farm also, and um, was able to work out this uh, deal where he was able to, to go on her farm thinking about this, you know, a small town in Indiana where my father goes in and does the ceremonial uh, method of how we procure our meat. So you know, it's kind of a funny story to think about that, you know, a bus driver who's Christian and a Muslim man who's studying at the local university kind of, you know, build this, build this connection. And it is kind of a very Midwest story. So I, I actually think it's not just my parents. I think it's being in a place where people genuinely care about each other. And that's why I still have a lot of hope for this kind of work, because you know, I think one of the things that I often 
I'm really thinking about in my work is I'm not really, I'm not, my, my struggle is not for independence. It's for interdependence. Mm. It's not about my dignity being recognized. It's about the fact that let's say I get to the point where if your dignity is violated by someone, that's a violation of my dignity. Yeah. And when we reach the point where our collective dignity is defined in such a way, then what hurts you hurts me. And, uh, you know, that's my hope that I raise my children that way, that they they don't just base their sense of justice on when they're violated, but they look at others in such a way that their humanity is not fully recognized or realized until the humanity of those around them is also fully recognized and realized. When in the in the timeline of, of your childhood, you know, moving here and growing up in the Midwest, obviously eventually winding up in Los Angeles. When was the first time that you were able to go back to Kashmir? Um, so I, yeah, I, I was for the first 10 years, we were in the Midwest and then I was on the East Coast in the Northern Virginia, D.C. area for middle school and high school. I didn't go back until I became uh, 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 legal resident in the United States when I was 15. And, you know, it was, it was really, um, when I went back, I think that was a pivotal moment. Um, when I went back and saw what, uh, it means to have the impact of, of such sort of a military presence over generations, you know, and I thought that was when I just, you know, I, I, I had this really visceral feeling of, for me, the resource that I want to draw on for my peacemaking is my faith tradition. And so that has really thrust my research and my writing and my practice. And to do it and to grow up in the United States after 9-11, you know, to have a community that's consistently targeted as being seen as violent, it's interesting to me because I, um, I've never had that connection to my tradition. I've never, I've never had to think through, well, how do I, how do I be a Muslim and be peaceful? They're synonymous for me. And so um, I feel really gifted with uh, the capacity to be able to see religion as a force of peace, not just my tradition, but all religions. And, um, you know, what has, what has really changed, uh, what changed for me on that visit was, this dedication to peacemaking in high school and uh, doing that work um, with other with other people my age, and then um, I chose a Quaker college. Quakers are known for their peacemaking work and their anti-racism and abolitionist work. So I, as a young Muslim girl at seventeen, was looking for someone to support my peacemaking, and ended up being mentored by some of um, some of the best scholars and activists on peacemaking and poverty and justice who were Quakers in North Carolina and the South. So, you know, um, it's funny. I tell these stories and they seem totally natural to me. And like, why? Of course I would go to North Carolina and study with um, Quaker scholars of the Christian tradition and end up, you know, being very grounded as a Muslim in my tradition and doing peacemaking now for almost 20 years in violent conflicts all over the world, as well as here in the United States. And now I have the privilege of teaching my students to do it. And I feel really blessed that many of them are doing it 
they work in prisons, they work in um, they work in organizations around the country uh, promoting peacemaking and interfaith uh, justice work. That's so cool. Did you, do you think it was then that visit home at 15 or to your home country at 15 that that really solidified to you that you wanted to do peacemaking work as your life's work? Absolutely. I remember Mm -hmm. being, I remember coming back and just, uh, just saying, you know, how do I do this work and how do I make sure that I do it authentically and that I do it in a way that has humility built on it, um, as foundation because one thing I saw was that people who uh, we, people who we, um, you know, often revere as peacemakers, and I think of such amazing people like Dr. King and other folks, um, you know, they did this work, but they were, we, we always celebrate the individual and we forget the collective. And, you know, um, I'm really careful and I really want to encourage all of us to move away from that idea of one savior coming in and changing everything for a community or all of us waiting for one person to win that election and change everything. Um, What freed me at the age of 15 was to recognize that we, there had to be a capacity for me to be empowered, to believe that I could do the work and have the vision that I had. And um, I think that's been the major thrust is just, uh, it's, a, it's someone told me there, they, I've heard this my whole life. You're so naively optimistic. And I always say, well, thank you very much. Because if you don't believe in a vision that's different than what you have in front of you, you'll just succumb to the conditions around you, right? So I'm not waiting. Uh, you know, at 15, I wasn't waiting for someone to give me permission to do this work. I didn't need, I know, I didn't need someone to, to give me permission to be um, a presence for peace and justice. We, what I mean by that is waiting, um, waiting for someone else to, to do that. Um, Ella Baker says, you know, strong, um, you know, strong communities, um, to paraphrase, in some ways don't need strong leaders because we're all leaders. So, that's been really helpful for me my whole life is to think through not just what I can do, but to understand that whatever sphere of influence I have, I have a capacity to, to do some work to move the needle on peace and justice and do it respectfully and to ask questions and to show up when people ask me to. Yeah. I think that's such an important thing too, to reiterate for anyone who's listening at home you know, you see now because of the internet and social media, everyone thinks they have to have a platform to make a difference. But I think people forget that everyone has a platform. And whether you have the ear of five people or 500, you can affect positive change in your community. Absolutely. And you know, um, you know, I often tell people, even in my social media presence, or when I talk to people, just how do I put this? It's our depth that matters more than our breadth. So let's say in one day you have a conversation 
with three people. And that conversation is so deeply transformative for both of you. The capacity of change is incredible because three people changing their lifestyle, changing their perspective versus getting 10,000 people to click on a petition. I'm just giving an example. I think we need to do both. And I think those that do the depth work and those that do the breadth, I think there's some folks that are able to do both. And I think we all need to, these are just strategies. I think it's really important not to confuse strategy with self. And if I have a, if I'm gifted with a, a platform that has great breadth, how do I use that? And, um, you know, one thing I love about the work you're doing with this podcast is, you know, bringing voices that may not be known broadly. But I think it's really important because if we always run after that breadth or that that having a wide or large platform, then we forget that we want to be transformed by this work too. And it becomes a performance. And that's, you know, performative work. Ultimately, it, it loses its soul and it loses its moral compass. And that's when you see people who are doing um, activism work or promoting a cause and in doing so may actually be, may actually be causing violence, um, not necessarily physically, but, you know, drowning out voices that are deeply affected by the issue or, you know, so we have to be careful when I, I think that you, thank you for kind of honing in on that because while we can be passionate and think about what we want to do in the world, if we go in, um, you know, we go in like, what is it, a bull in a glass shop, you know, you could actually make things worse for people who actually are the ones that have to deal with the consequences of the reality that you're trying to work to better. So I think it's really important to be in partnership. And just to remember that this is a strategy. And when, you know, maybe ask the question, am I the most effective person? And if I'm not, let me step aside and give the mic to someone else or, or those that don't have the mic and I don't need to do the speaking, but I can hand the mic over. Mm. Help the helpers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Can you explain when, when we're talking about peacemaking and strategy, how to show up in community for, for listeners who may not know exactly what it is you do, I, I realized uh, we should probably run through the specifics because I'm sure there's some people at home who are like, this is very cool, but what does it mean? <laughs> right, right. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, it's, it's on, um, you know, it's also, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like it, but yeah, I have been doing the work for 20 years. Um, so I think it's on multiple levels. One of them is encouraging or bringing communities together across difference, difference of religion, difference of background, and to be able to encounter and understand and learn about each other. Um, you know, we know that unfortunately every election cycle, for instance, hatred about against Muslims goes up. We know that um, amongst religious groups, Jews um, are the most targeted in the United States. Anti-Semitic hate crimes are actually usually amongst the highest we know that um, amongst racist hate crimes, African-Americans are the most targeted. So part of the work is developing uh, relationships and community encounters, for instance, interfaith encounters where people 
spend time learning about each other. And I've seen transformations in that work. I have students, I had a student that was trembling after the class that I taught this winter, um, who said that she had come in with a real hatred against Muslims, like a palpable, violent hatred against Muslims. And by this exposure, she was able to transform her perspective. And what she realizes, her perspective was never based on actually meeting a Muslim, but it was based in the media. It was based on, you know, whatever that image was. So the work is, that's one layer of work is, is bringing together communities. Um, another layer of work is I actually go into conflicts where violence has happened um, and bring together parties through a restorative justice process to address conflicts and address harm and address issues. And um, that's where I've intersected a lot with the criminal justice system is trying to, trying to help us move towards a place where we're not using incarceration and violent uh, means of, of incarcerating large swaths of communities and have done restorative justice for almost 20 years now with different, in different scenarios and cases. So I'll actually go in and facilitate a process. Um, I can give you an example. My first case, and this really illuminated, for those that don't know, I also have a law degree and I'm a lawyer. Um, the first case I did almost probably 16 years ago, I walked into a room and there was a nine-year-old boy sitting at a table. He was charged by, he was being charged uh, for theft. So this nine-year-old boy had taken some money from the ice cream truck driver who came to his neighborhood every week. So this case ends up in the criminal justice system. And um, thankfully, there was a program that diverted it. And um, I sat there with the ice cream truck driver and a nine-year-old boy. And instead of him getting charged in the juvenile justice system, they worked out a solution where she understood. And he told her that, you know, I was hungry. I didn't get food that week. And I needed to buy some lunch the next day. And she told him, you know, I know you and I trust you and I like you. And um, why don't you come in, uh, volunteer and learn business um, and how to sell ice cream. And maybe that's something you can use down the line. So instead of this nine-year-old boy ending up in the criminal justice system um, and maybe in other systems that would have, you know, um, really affected him for the rest of his life, Here's this solution that he and the ice cream truck driver came up with and they are friends and they continued that friendship. And, you know, I was just really struck with there is, you know, there is there is another way to resolve conflicts when we empower people to have a relationship. And I don't know that really because the reason I remember that is he was so young that his feet couldn't even touch the ground in the chair. And this is going to be, you know, this boy who's hungry that day that did what any of us would have done as a nine-year-old kid, you know, he's getting targeted by the system. And why don't we have more opportunities and programs where we're able to let communities negotiate, talk, and build solutions that are based on relationships and peaceful outcomes. And to me, that's true justice. Like true justice was served in that scenario. Um, he learned something, he built a relationship. And the bigger injustice is, why do we live in a society where a nine-year-old isn't able to 
have, you know, three square meals a day, who knows um, the level of racism and economic injustice that his family faced. So I just want to point that out. So those are some of the examples of work is thinking through, are there alternate ways where people can be empowered to negotiate, to have a relationship instead of using a means of violence, whether that violence, actual violence or a system that that will create long-term generational violence against uh, an individual, and then, as we know, over time against a community. So I teach classes and all these things, and I train students to do all this work. So It's so cool. <laughs> as a teacher, for people who are listening, who are inspired, as I am, what would be some resources that you would suggest to begin learning this work? You know, the kinds of stuff you were studying at university, the kinds of stuff that you teach your students now, where, where do you tell people to begin? You know, um, in most communities, there is uh, often a, uh, a conflict resolution or mediation center. Um, another way that I did this work for years was in schools, um, making sure, for instance, um, one of the ways we've been able, I worked a lot with high schools and middle schools, um, more and more schools, unfortunately, have cops instead of counselors. So advocating certainly for counselors, but also trying to build systems where our children are going to school. Um, one of the things that I've done a lot of is peer mediation and restorative justice, where we teach middle school and high school students how to resolve conflicts so that um, the principal will refer to these restorative justice or peace circles um, conflicts that they have. I actually even did this with universities. So instead of going through the disciplinary system, the students sit down and talk through the conflict. So, you know, there may be a center um, in your local community that kind of the words you would look for would be conflict resolution, peacemaking, restorative justice, transformative justice. These are all principles that you can read about, that you can learn about. Um, and if you're not connected to a school, the, there's a, there are many churches doing this work. Um, more and more um, communities are recognizing that instead of resolving conflicts through violence, we need to be able to animate all of us to be actors in our own destiny as peacemakers. I love that. There's something that I would like to read to the listeners. You, you wrote an article that was published earlier this year, which applies so much of what we're talking about when, when we talk about peacemaking and when we talk about violence that can be put onto a community. We're looking at a lot of violence coming towards so many of us in the country from, from the highest level, from, from the administration. And when we look at, to your point, affected communities, communities of color, refugees, you, you wrote this article that's so beautiful. And I, I just, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to read a piece of it. You said, for many, the scriptural obligation to care for the stranger is a core religious belief. By having this capacity for service undercut, in many ways, the faithful across the spectrum from conservative to progressive are unable to fulfill their religious obligations for care. 
the administration's refusal to engage the many faith-based leaders and organizations who called for more, not less, openness to welcoming refugees decries its alleged commitment to religious freedom. That's such an interesting argument to posit that, that for so many people, what is being politicized is an affront to faith and to so many faiths, to, to this idea that we're meant to care for refugees, that we're meant to love our neighbors. How, as a peacemaker, do you stretch the expanse between faith and politics? Yeah, you know, and I, I remember writing that piece because we were dealing with the reality that this administration has essentially dismantled the refugee and the asylum-seeking um, asylum seeking process. So, you know, I just want to remind everyone that seeking asylum is not a crime. Being a refugee mm-hmm. is not a crime. Crossing the border to seek asylum um, is not a crime. Um, and I went about a year ago to Tijuana with, and now it's so poignant, I went with a group of nurses who were volunteering their time and other faith leaders, Jewish leaders, Catholic leaders. Um, and we went across the border to talk to refugees in Tijuana to offer um, counseling. And the nurses um, offered, uh, healthcare workers offered volunteer screening. And, um, you know, I was thinking th- these are the people that um, at that time, the language that this administration used was the language we used for insects. Um, hordes of people. Um, it was incredibly dehumanizing language. And I remember going to an encampment. People are literally living in, in tents. And I walked up to this man. I, my Spanish is not great, but what I found is language of the heart transcends understanding. And I walked up to this man. He was holding a beautiful nine-year-old girl. Uh, sorry, nine-month-old girl. So he's standing there holding this nine-month-old girl, and I have two children of my own. And I walked up to him and I said, sir, you know, um, is this your daughter? And he said, no, this is not my daughter, and this is my niece. I, along with um, my wife, fled in the middle of the night because her father was killed. And we knew that we were going to be targeted the next day. And he said, I've walked for days with her, holding her. And um, it just struck me that these, you know, this man is fleeing violence, trying to save a child that's not his and living in in this encampment. Mm. And across the border is a country with incredible wealth that is portraying him as a threat, that's portraying him as a violent person. And all he really wants is what any of us would want in that situation. And that, to me, was the heart of a spiritual um, and religious obligation that all of our religious traditions and the Muslim tradition, someone who's fleeing violence, we're meant to open our doors to them. Um, Mm. In the Jewish tradition, in the Christian tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, all of these, and, you know, this idea of, you know, we as people of faith, we're the ones who don't say, well, how much money do you make? What are you going to contribute to this society financially? Um, You know, do you serve our needs? We say, 
Your story is one where you're carrying a child, fleeing imminent death, and you're here to, you know, that's a that's a spiritual obligation on me to open my door because it's not scarcity, it's actually abundance. Um, and I hope that that's one thing. Um, if there is, um, I don't ever believe that something like the virus should ever be blamed on anyone and its cause, but talk about it spiritually is not to talk about it, why it happened or what God meant about it, but to talk about it spiritually is to say, what is our spiritual response? What is our collective response? And I hope that what we learn from it is that in the end, we can't just take care of our own self because Mm. this has shown us that if one of us suffers in the end, all of us will suffer. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I think about that with, with refugees. Our numbers are have gone down precipitously. Organizations, and most of them are faith-based, and actually most of them are Christian-based organizations. Again, was many, many conservative Christian communities stood up against the closing of our refugee programs and our numbers dwindling. So, you know, that's why you, when I travel and I speak around the country, I go to Omaha, Nebraska, and there's a Syrian community. I go to speak in Maine, and there's a Somali community. You know, um, it was actually often Christian churches and communities that played a major role in resettlement. So, so I just, you know, I, 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 think, I think that that was part of the religious freedom of, of those folks was to say, I'm obligated to serve the stranger. I'm obligated to serve... Um, people who are fleeing violence. I'm obligated to serve people who are dealing with extreme hunger. And if I have something, the spiritual response is not scarcity. The spiritual response is if I give, more will be provided. Because if I hoard it to myself, then ultimately those resources disappear for far more than just myself. And in the end, I'll suffer. You know, I I think that's part of it is, we have to begin to to move away from this notion that we're islands, and I think this, I think we're in we're in a cultural and national and spiritual moment where we can have a response that is going to build an armor around us, or we can be open and say, um, what we learned was that we didn't take care of each other enough. We didn't um, take care of the frontline workers. We didn't realize that those that are making less than $15 an hour are the ones that are keeping everyone else alive, but themselves are not being protected. I mean, that to me is a spiritual and moral question. And I think Mm -hmm. it's become clear that it's not the degrees, it's it's not the removal from society that is going to protect you. What we've learned is it's 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 in reality um, the people that are keeping our society going are the ones that we need to think through. Are we really, you know, are we really actually supporting them? Uh, so those are you know I feel like there's just there's a lot to, more we could talk about, and it I do think that there is a recognition and a shift, um, and um, you know if some people are just waking up to this. That I don't think that you know we can't penalize people that are just waking up to some of these issues, um, and that takes patience, and that everyone has a role. So I really, I really hope that that's the message that comes across: is 
everyone has a role, whether you're religious, whether you're not, whether you're conservative, whether you're progressive, that for me, there is a capacity for us to collectively transform in a way that is authentic to each of us. Why do you think when we talk about religion and, and the way that faith and especially interfaith communities can can really stand for one another, why do you think that religion is still such a divisive topic for people in this country? Because you you discuss it in a way that's so uniting. So much of what you discuss is is in these ways that really bring unity to the forefront, yet for some reason we see so much division around religion. Well, I think because religion is so deeply core to who people are that there is, um, it is the thing that's relied upon to create division. So I don't think it exists, division naturally exists. I think when we, I often talk about the commodifying or the weaponizing of hate. So when election cycles begin, uh, we know when the presidential election cycle goes up, the the hate crimes against Muslims go up because it's about scapegoating. It's about um, it's not just religion and politics that's the problem. It's the it's the taking on and scapegoating and creating mechanisms where we think that um, where we think that hate is going to benefit a political aim. And I think we have to really ask that question. You know, wow. one of the fundamental questions whenever, so there are three questions I ask in every conflict I go to, to, to work on. The first is, what is sacred to you? Uh, the second is, who do you consider human? And because what I've found is we have, all of us have to work on that category of who is inhuman. And many conflicts are based on not seeing everyone in that category of human. And I've added a third in the last three years is, am I in your future? And that has been extremely helpful for me. And when I say that, I don't mean like, am I individually, but do you see the community that you're in conflict? Are they part of the future that you see? And what happens when religion is used and weaponized is, people are building an exclusive future. They're building a future that isn't, that isn't, you know, um, they're thinking of a future and that's where that scarcity of resources, scarcity of, of, of a capacity to embrace difference. And that's where supremacy comes up that, you know, I want my future to only have a certain kind of person. And that is a supremacist future. And, um, it can get weaponized utilizing religion and then often tying it to racism. So I just want to point that out. Like I think in some ways the future we see is a good indicator of, and I don't mean future afterlife. That's what I think has been the problem. People think about religion and they say, well, do you think I'm going to go to hell or heaven? And I've told my students, you know what, if you can work with someone who you think both of you are not sure if you're both going to go to heaven or accept each other in heaven, Maybe you even think the opposite, but you can work for a, a heavenly presence on this earth. Then that means you're you're really doing the good work. It's not about the future after we die. It's about the future of of this of one's own life and one's own children. And that's a question that we really have to ask because it brings up 
whether we have an exclusive supremacist future that doesn't include people that don't look and think like me. And unfortunately, that's where I think religion has been weaponized is to say that, you know, um, if you have these people in your future, um, they, they are to blame for this. They are to blame for that without, without, um, without actually addressing or recognizing that we have problems. So, so I think that's what the division is. I don't think there's a natural division between religions. I don't think any one religion is always peaceful and any one religion is always violent. I think we all, we all have capacities for peace and we all have capacities for violence. And um, once we begin to harden our perceptions of each other, it's usually based on this notion of of, of trying to trying to uh, weaponize hate, um, mm-hmm. an us versus them kind of mentality. Yeah. When you think on spaces you've facilitated conflict resolution, because you you've done that for conflicts in schools, communities, environmental controversies, public controversies. You, you've worked in so many arenas and, and worked to dispel conflict, work to reunify people. This conversation we're having makes me wonder, do, do you think that some of what you're speaking about ties into what the underlying themes are in, in all of these conflicts that, that otherizing the, the questions about future that we may or may not even realize we're answering in the ways that we are. Absolutely. And I think as a core to all of this is the perception that there are not enough resources for us to share. Um, uh, and that perception is so, um, it's so dangerous. And in fact, what happens is once that threat is introduced into, uh, into a conflict, it gets further weaponized and um, and the perception is not just that there isn't enough, but guess what? These people are taking it from you. So you can use that trope again amongst multiple conflicts, um, right? right? It's, it starts off with, oh, there isn't enough and we're competing. And then guess what? If we allow them to be in this future, not only... Um, not only is there not enough, you know, if you think about refugees or all of these conversations, and unfortunately, those are really false narratives, um, because what we see, for instance, is um, that societies that, I mean, research bears out a diverse workforce is a far more productive and imaginative workforce. Um, societies that have integrated and uh, built diverse uh, and come from diverse cultural backgrounds actually are innovative. And, you know, so cities in the United States that have opened up to immigrants, some of them are economically far more flourishing. So it, it, that false narrative about the future, it's not just about, and here I don't mean just economics, that everyone thinks about things in economics, but it's this idea of even culture that, okay, Maybe we don't talk about it in terms of resources, but cultural resources. If, for instance, we have a diverse country, that means that it's going to erode whatever one way of life that there was. But the reality is there's never been just one way of doing everything, right? 
Right. The <laughs> irony of that is not lost on me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I think we have to be really careful about um, not just how we construct the future, but how we think about the past. Um, yeah. And I've been really, um, you know, one of the things I do in my work, um, I call it re-mythologizing. So I work with communities around the world. I was thinking about a conflict here in the United States in a small, in a city between different ethnic communities. And um, I asked them each to do timelines of the history of the city. And, you know, it was fascinating because the same um, period of time for one group was their time of dominance. And that was the same time that another community was excluded. And when you get mm. down to the conversation, it's, it's, it's not, as I mentioned, just, it's not about resources only, but it's about this idea of, 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 of a capacity for a community to be built that culturally uh, allows for multiple voices to exist. And that to me mm. is in some ways the justice, the justice component of our existence. And, um, you know, so I, 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 you know, I just hope in addition to the scarcity issue, but one of the things I see running through all these conflicts is people will say, for instance, in interreligious conflicts, Muslims and Christians have always been fighting. And that's not actually true. Or Muslims and Jews have never had periods where they have worked together. That's not true. So when I re-mythologize with religious communities, we look at times when the communities did maybe coexist and collaborate and what were the conditions that led to it. We just have to always look at the narratives that we build upon and make sure that those are narratives that were not created in, um, in a way that was actually false to what was happening and what can happen um, if we accept conflict as inevitable as a state of all humans for that till the end of time. Mm. What a powerful experience that must be to, because when you say re-mythologize, it, it's also about the, the image that comes to mind for me is almost pouring a new foundation, you know, for, for a house, like a, a real base for things. And, and you're pouring it with truth. You know, you're, you're really, solidifying fact and and allowing people to come at it from a much more educated perspective and to see the landscape for what it is and how to move forward in in much more empowered and inclusive ways I imagine I'm curious are, are there lessons you've learned you know in in reverse from your students that that stick out to you as a professor Absolutely like um, I'm actually, we'll be starting at a, I'm starting at a new institution called Chicago Theological Seminary. And one thing that really struck me was, you know, um, Los Angeles has a very large, uh, Native American population. And I grew up on the East coast in a small town in, a, in Northern Virginia and DC. So here I was teaching theology, teaching religion, and always doing Muslim, Christian, Jewish perspectives, Muslim, Christian, maybe Buddhist perspectives, Hindu perspectives. And I started to have, you know, I, I came and I started to have Native students in my classes. And uh, I had a student in particular, and her name is Cameron, and she transformed the way that I taught because um, 
I was teaching conflict resolution and mediation, and she was saying, you know, a lot of the methods that you're teaching come from indigenous roots. Mm. And it really made me think through what had happened as I was studying with some of the people who wrote the books in the field, and they had just not acknowledged those lineages. They did not acknowledge, for instance, you know, maybe the Maori traditions role, or um, there's a native Hawaiian method of peacemaking. So they're putting it in books and not teaching it, not acknowledging it. And I'm thinking, wait, this is, you know, her, her intervention was really important and it reversed the role of professor and teacher. Hmm. It wasn't that I didn't necessarily know this fact, but I had been learning a practice that was deeply embedded and we have to, you know, I, it, it changed now how I teach. So when I'm thinking about comparative perspectives on peacemaking, it means teaching, for instance, a scholar named Linda Tuhuai Smith, who's a Maori scholar. It means um, acknowledging and understanding and naming and always not to the level of perfection that I would like to. Um, but that I think is, was a really important lesson because So one of the, how do I put it? One of the major, uh, one of the major things that happens in a conflict is erasure. And when you erase a people in their history, that in some ways is the most damaging thing that you do. Because sometimes if you name and you scapegoat, at least you have presence. But here we are teaching something and teaching practices, and we continue. For instance, right now, the coronavirus is affecting um, indigenous and native communities in very serious ways in the United States. Mm. Is that being covered by the media? I don't think it's getting a lot of engagement, right? And this, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a community that has existed, pre-existed most, uh, most, um, of the lineages of, of others. And so that really struck me. And um, so I would say that's something I learned and it changed my worldview. It had to, once I, once I thought about and recognized Native traditions as, as, uh, as lineages of religious and spiritual knowledge, then I had to kind of interrogate how I constructed everything that I was teaching. So Yeah, so I think that's one example and unfortunately one that I continue to see replicated. And it's that just erasure, like as if that's a thing in the past. That's a community that doesn't exist anymore when that community is very much here and very much a part of of, um, building society and and also continuing to be targeted by policies, um, sometimes specifically and sometimes by non-acknowledgement. So yeah, sometimes the act of omission is as dangerous as an act of targeted commission against a community. Right. Well, and what an inspiring reminder, really, that that we always have the ability to look deeper, to understand more, to re to reframe our thinking, to reevaluate where we're coming from. It's it really serves as a reminder that there's a permission constantly for growth. When we when we talk about your students, I, I can't help but think, given the, that we are in the middle of these shutdowns because of coronavirus, your college semester just stopped. Are 
are you are you teaching remotely? What what is that experience like as a professor um, to be in the middle of something with your students and then have have it cease like this? Yeah, I think for a lot of colleagues that's been very tough. Um, and I think I'm feeling it most right now in this season of time when our students, I teach master's and doctoral level students. So they've spent a year, two years, three years on their projects. And I have amazing projects. I have a student that did her dissertation last year on migrant workers and theology. I have another student working on um, South Central Los Angeles and African-American Muslim um, African-American Muslim community organizations that are serving there. And so it's been, um, it's been tough to not be there when they're doing and defending these years of research, doing it by Zoom. I did one this morning um, for a student who was talking about government policies that target the Muslim community and not being able to interact with them and congratulate them and Mm. thank them for their years of work. Um, Commencement, you know, we have students, you know, particularly um, it, thinking about first generation students, the first ones to go to college in their family, the first one to get a doctorate degree, the first to become um, a pastor, you know, those are just incredible mm. moments. And, you know, for me as a professor, I savor witnessing their joy because their joy is my joy. Um, watching, you know, meeting their parents. I can't tell you how many um, how many parents I get to meet every year. Last year I met, um, you know, a lot of my students come from parts of the world where they're persecuted minorities. Some of them are Christian. Some of them are from other religious backgrounds and it's not easy for their families to come. And so I'm just thinking about, you know, um, what that means. I mean, it's, it's, Mm. and with, you know, with everything else going on in the world, we need, we need to be able to celebrate. So, right. yeah. so yeah, I think it's, yeah, the joy. I'm going to miss the joy and watching the joy on their faces and the people that they love with all the struggles that come with, with education these days. During all of this, being home, you know, being by, by nature more, I suppose, introspective, given that we're all kind of locked up with ourselves and our thoughts. How, how are spirituality and religion guiding you through this right now? You know, they are absolutely guiding. I'm looking at my, um, I'm looking, I'm sitting in my, you know, in a, at a desk and I have these little notes that are taped to my door and it says, love you. You are my mom. You're a kind human. That's from my 11 year old. And yeah, I think I needed it that day. <laughs> she must have read into me on footnotes, little love letters. Um, so I think foremost is that sort of this idea in our tradition, we have something the Quran, the Muslim tradition says, if you have a patience, have it be a beautiful patience. So it means not only am I recognizing that I, for instance, have the privilege to stay at home, right? I, I'm a professor, I can do that. And so I really think through this idea of how do I create uh, the spiritual capacity to be able to be patient um, in a way that isn't just grumbling and, you know, sort of um, complaining, but 
uh, exhibits and exudes a sense of of there is a reason that we're doing this. And it is kind of, you know, I may not be directly, I may not be affected directly, but this is part of, this is part of where we're feeling a collective that we're doing this, whether I'm in a high risk category, whether I'm directly affected, this is going to save lives overall. It may not be my life. It might be someone else's. And so that to me is a spiritual duty that I exercise, um, the sacredness of life, whether it's mine or someone else's, that I, I should protect that. And so, um, yeah, I see that foremost. And uh, just prayer for me is really important. Um, and I think you mentioned, you know, just hearing the birds, hearing um, hearing the earth speak and understanding that um, while I'm in my house, my neighbor's in their house, that um, this is something that we're all doing. And while we're connecting through virtual means, we're all doing this in real time. I'm not sure that we've had an experience in the last 20 years that I'm aware of where we're all really kind of going through. As we mentioned, there are a lot of people who don't have the privilege to stay home what we are all going through is facing a really serious risk to, to our whole um, country, if not the world. So there's something, there's something to be learned in just um, in thinking through what my role is in thinking through how do I contribute to it? Not at, again, this, this huge level, but as a mother, as, um, as someone who has, and is the custodian of two children, what does that mean to be there for them, to be loving and caring? How do I check in on the people that I love and the friends that I have? How do I make sure that there's a community of care, even if I can't see people face to face? And, um, you know, so those are some of the things in a strange way. I feel like I'm connecting much more to my family and friends than I have in, in a long time. So Mm -hmm. there's a lesson in that too. Mm. If you could leave our listeners with one lesson or practice to enact in their lives right now, maybe for some expansion or some relief, what what would that be? Um, In our tradition, there's this beautiful um, verse from the Quran or, or, uh, um, this verse that asks this question, which of the favors of God will you deny? So, and it lists in that, it lists in that uh, chapter of the Quran, beautiful examples like um, the idea of the earth as a balance, the fruits that we are provided, nature. And so I really am starting off every day thinking through Instead of, and this is actually, I think, a practice that serves across uh, what I do in my work is how do I recalibrate my lens and saying, what's missing? What can I have more of? What do I need more of? What do I have to get? Where do I have to be? Who do I have to meet? And think through, what do I already have? How much do I already have? What blessings I have? What have I been given? What can I enjoy? What can I share? What can I give away? What do I have too much of? What do, um, you know, what do I need? And how can I ask for it 
um, when I recognize I don't have enough, but not starting from like denying all of the blessings that I have. And I mean, you know, I, as I mentioned, some of us have resources um, in abundance that are material, but there are a lot of resources, you know, I think about, um, I think about the resource of listening. Isn't that an incredible gift? I always tell my students that listening is the gift that keeps giving and um, so many of us are so desperately lonely, whether we have a large platform and we're well connected on the internet or we have a ton of friends. I'm not really sure we're having or have had conversations where someone validated our full humanity. And I'm struck by how many conversations we have where we're not listening And that's a resource. You may not have a financial resource, but you can pick up the phone and listen to someone who's struggling. And um, I really think if we did that more, this, you know, we, we live in a crisis of not just, um, not just a public health crisis, but we live in a time in a crisis where people are desperately lonely and disconnected and disaffected and, you know, I hope that that's a resource we'll consider sharing with each other, you know. Uh, the listening you've done with me today, I mean, I think you've really listened. And you know what? I really think the basic human need is to be heard and to be seen. And so many of us don't feel seen. And I don't mean seen in a way that we are recognized and get accolades and 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 prizes, but just seen for who we are um, at the very basic level on how we choose to be in the world. So I hope that's a gift people will consider and a practice they'll share. I love that. I feel lighter after just listening to that answer. So thank you. Um, my final question for you is, is the one that is my favorite to ask everybody. As you know, the podcast is called Work in Progress. And I'm curious when you hear the phrase, what what comes to mind first as a work in progress in your life right now? I think, you know, I'm, um, so I'm a mom and I have two kids. And I think that the biggest kind of recognition I've had at my age, <laughs> my undisclosed age, I'm happy to say, <laughs> is, um, is what is success? You know, what is success? Um, what is ambition? And I feel like I see my students, I see my kids, I see family members, I see all of us under this pressure of defining it outwardly and taking someone's map and label. And so let me use I statements here because this was, that was a good question about <laughs> me. And, um, you know, so like I, I've really begun to think about, wait, have I been a good friend? Have I been a good human to the earth? Um, you know, this year I've been really thinking about my carbon imprint. So I moved to buying a lot of my clothes secondhand. Um, I, you know, thought about my house and just trying to make a lot of different choices because to me that begins to be what success is. Um, And it really, in some ways, follows the Buddhist principle of this idea of 
how can I decrease my harm in the world, you know, live a life of no harm. So I've been thinking about that far more as success than am I um, running after the career. You know, I ran after the career that I wanted and I got it in my 20s and then I wasn't happy. Well, I wasn't unhappy, but it didn't bring... It didn't bring the rush of, of, of sort of, I could, you know, I got awards for the work that I've done, but ultimately I, it's that inner critic and I don't want the inner critic to go away. Cause sometimes I feel like that's what people say, just let go of the inner critic. You'll be fine. I actually want to have an <laughs> internal moral compass. Right. Um, but seeing it that way, not as have you achieved this goal by this age and creating these artificial conditions that really, I think, break people down mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and begin to think about, am I living a life that is um, connected, that is helping others? And, Mm -hmm. you know, the more that I am in a position of doing that, the happier that I am. And that's been really helpful to think about self-care in a communal notion. How am I in relationship to the earth, in relationship to my family, in relationship to my community, in relationship to the world? And and so, yeah, I've re- begun to rethink success quite a bit and, I don't know, develop my own, develop my own um, ways of thinking about it. And that's mm. freed me. I feel incredibly free, you know? I feel connected, but I feel free. And when I was using the former measurements of success, I felt trapped and I felt disaffected and disconnected. So that's beautiful. Thank you. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish, and our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.